0: Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time and now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Well hey, if you have a Bible, open up with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. we don't have a uh, children's ministry service today. this is our family service. We want to uh, teach our kids to uh, worship the Lord uh, with with the parents and so that they can see that modeled uh, not just here at home as well but we want to provide that opportunity together, and particularly on this day, which we celebrate communion, that our kids are here with us in the sanctuary, that they have the opportunity to see what it is, what it means, to really uh, worship the Lord and to partake of communion and and the sorts of things. And so that's what we do on Fellowship Sundays. So Luke chapter 19, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll make sure you get one. We want you to be in the Word with us this morning. Luke chapter 19. 19, if I can get my iPad to open up, we'll be good here. We're going to, stand with me if you would please. We're going to begin in verse 28 of Luke chapter 19. As we continue the study of uh, the Follow Me series, the life and in the, in the ministry of Jesus in chronological order, we find ourselves here at the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 19, verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If he want to ask you why you're untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them, And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And Father, we thank you this morning. For this glorious truth of Jesus following the prophetic plan that you laid out 500 years prior, Lord, you do what you say always, and we can trust your word. And so this morning, Father, we pray that as we we sit before you, that our hearts or opened what it is that you want to say to us. We know that you won't withhold the truth. And so, Lord, let us be obedient as you speak to us. Lord, we pray for your spirit to just do a work in our hearts this morning, to draw us close, to awaken our hearts, Lord, to the victory that we've been given through Jesus Christ. We thank you for this time, Lord, and we ask you to bless it now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Could you imagine what it would be like if you won the lottery and then you said, I only want to receive part of the prize? How insane would it be for you to say, I know that I won and I know that I have it all, but I only want part of it. Now, don't go too far with that. Let me reel you back in. You're already thinking of the money that you don't have to spend on the things that you want, so come on back with me. But here's the reality. Many people live their Christian life like this. Many people uh, live their Christian life receiving only partially what Christ has done for us on the cross. The Bible tells us that if the Son is set free, fill it in for me. You're what? You're free indeed. If... That is conditional. The Son has set you free. You're free indeed. What is being spoken of there is someone who has come in surrender to Jesus Christ. That's the if in the statement. If the Son has set you free, what is the Son doing? He is setting you free. Free from what? Free from the bondage of sin and death. Salvation. He has set you free, He has broken the chains of sin. Death has no more power over you. As the scripture says, oh, death, where is your sting? There is no victory anymore in death because Jesus Christ has paid the price for you. He has set you free. The last part of that verse says what? Then you are free partially? Then you're free indeed. How many of you here this morning, you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you would say that you're only experiencing a partial victory in your life some way, shape, or form. My guess is that you all are, because I know I am. But the Scripture says, if the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. What I want to talk to you about this morning is the way to victory. The way to victory, and we find it in the triumphal entry of Jesus. There's three things that I want to share with you about the way to victory. There are things that you know for sure. But, as often is so, the the truth is hidden in plain sight, isn't it? So oftentimes, we're blinded by the most obvious things. And so let me remind you this morning about the way to victory. Here we find Jesus in the triumphal entry. The first thing, if you're taking notes that I want to mention to you, is the way to victory is marked with obedience. The way to victory is marked with obedience Look at verse 28 there, and it said, when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near the Bethpage in Bethany at the mount, that is called Olivet, he sent the two of his disciples, saying, go into the village in front of you, where where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it, bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it, just as he told them. Imagine that. And as they were untying the colts, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. This day that's being spoken of here is Sunday. Now, if you're a football fan, what day is that? That is game day. That is game day. Practice is over. There's no more time to fool around. It's game day. For Jesus, this is game day. There's no more messing around. He is going into Jerusalem. and In five days, he'll be crucified. He'll be dead. On the seventh day, he will rise again from the dead. This is Sunday. It's game day. Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem, and now he's going up to Jerusalem. Now, Luke's gospel... As you saw last week, we were in John, we're doing, we're following Jesus chronologically through the gospels. And so we're not, we're, we generally teach line by line through a particular book of the Bible, but we're doing a, a chronological series of the life and the ministry of Jesus. And last week we were in John, we saw that Jesus was in Bethany. But in Luke's gospel here, it tells us that Jesus is moving towards Beth, Bethpage and Bethany. The deal is this, is that Uh, Luke moves Jesus from Jericho directly to the Mount of Olives, and that's why it's stated that way. Jesus is on the east side of the Temple Mount at this point. Now, if you know anything about prophecy, that's crucial because we know the second coming of Christ, when Jesus comes back, which side is he going to come on? The east side. Which gate will he enter upon the Temple Mount? The eastern gate. Isn't it interesting that Jesus is on the eastern side of Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount here, in his first coming? Understand, the prophecies are clear, but people are missing them. There's pieces of the puzzle that they've left out. They're they're, they're thinking that Jesus is coming to triumph over, over their enemies, the Romans. And yet, Jesus is coming to triumph over a far bigger enemy, than Rome. He is coming to triumph over sin and death. He is coming to draw back those who have been lost, those who are estranged from the Father. He is coming to pay the price. He is coming to lay down his life. It's game day for Jesus Christ. And he's ready to pay the price for you and I. Now notice that Jesus is following an implicit plan It's not like he's making it up as he goes along, is he? I mean, Jesus said, I have come to do what? Not my will, but the will of who? The Father. He's come to do the will of the Father. Jesus tells the Father in his high priestly prayer, Father, I've done all that you have asked me to do. Father, I've done all that you've asked me to do. Jesus Christ is not on his own program here. Yes, he is God in the flesh. But understand, He is is full of the Holy Spirit, number one. Number two, He is submissive to the Father's plan. That was the role of Messiah. God in the flesh, Emmanuel, He would come, and He would not be about His own program, but He would follow the program of the Father. And Jesus tells us that He's about the program of the Father. And He says, I am doing the Father's will here. There is one thing that is absolutely vital to Jesus entering Jerusalem in this particular day on game day, and that is that he must be 100% obedient. He can't be partially obedient in this. There are far too many things going on that, that his disciples don't even understand, actually. One of the gospel accounts as it relates to the triumphal entry of Jesus says that These disciples, they went and got the cult, but they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't understand it. But when he was glorified, when Jesus rose again from the dead, and he was standing in their midst risen, it says they remembered these things. You see, uh, there's one thing really crucial is that Jesus is obedient, and so Jesus is giving his disciples explicit instructions on exactly what to do and they, too, must be obedient in order to pave the way to victory for you and I. Now, I myself wouldn't put uh, uh, that kind of pressure, I wouldn't put that kind of responsibility on man, but I'm not God, thankfully. Listen, Jesus told his disciples, just do exactly what I tell you to do. Now, of course, they would have wanted to do it some other way. Come on, this is victory, Jesus. Why are we riding in on a colt we should be riding in On a horse. Why do I say that? Because the reality is back in this day when someone was to ride on a colt into a town, a king in particular, there was a message that was being sent to the town. It was a message that the king was coming in peace. If a king was to ride on a horse into town, they would understand that to mean that he was coming for war. That he was coming for war. And so Jesus says, listen to me, you go get the colt. That's one reason. is because there's a message being sent in his coming. The fact that Jesus is coming in his first, uh, you know, visit to Jerusalem as the Prince of Peace. He's coming in peace as the Prince of Peace. He's coming as the Lamb of God to lay down his life. He will come on a horse. You can be sure of that. And when he comes with the horse, he's coming with the sword. And he's coming for war. But in his first coming, he's coming as the Prince of Peace. He's trying to make peace for those who are estranged to the Father, who are at enmity with God. Enemies of the Lord. And Jesus would say, you have to do it this way. Another reason that they must follow These plans explicitly, Jesus also must follow this in particularly is because it was prophesied that the Messiah would ride on a donkey into town. It was prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. It says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, the King is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is He. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a donkey. It's prophetic. Aren't you grateful that Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on a colt, on a donkey, on a foal, exactly as it says? Man, I'll tell you what, I am, because what that means for me is that no matter when God writes His Word, it is for sure. It will happen exactly the way that He says it will happen. You can trust it. You can take it to the bank. And so obedience here is the way to victory. It's the only way. It's the only way that Jesus can come into Jerusalem triumphally, because it was prophesied, because it's sending a message that's saying, I'm coming in peace. I'm coming to lay down my life for you because I am the Prince of Peace. If you and I want to be victorious in our life if you want to move beyond the partial victory that you're experiencing in your life right now you have to be fully obedient to the word of god you can't be partially obedient partial obedience is full rebellion you understand that partial obedience is it's like a white lie it's still a lie it's you know you're still lying partial obedience is full rebellion to god and so if you and I are going to experience the weight of victory for you today, if you're here and you're stuck and you're saying, I want to move from the valley to the mountain, the Lord would tell you to just be obedient to his word. The Bible tells us that he's given us his word that if we hide it in our heart, what? We might not sin against him. Psalm chapter 119, verse 11 the word also tells us that if we, if we hold fast to it, it will keep us from slipping. Psalm 37, 31. The law of God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. Where is victory found, folks? It's found in the word of God. Yes, Jesus came and set you free from the chains. Now there is a condition on the victory that he's given you, and that's conditional upon your willingness to be obedient to the word. If you're not experiencing full victory in your life, the reality is that maybe it's because you're not being obedient to the Word. Whatever it is you're struggling with, you just simply go to the Word of God and you say, Lord, what do you say about this subject? What is it that I'm... That, the thing that I'm dealing with in my life right now, how can I get out of it? You go to His Word and then you what? Be obedient to His Word. That's the way to victory. Yes, Jesus has set you free and you're cleansed from your sin, But we have uh, have this, the Bible tells us that we are so easily entangled in our sin, we fall right back into the very same traps that Jesus has released us from. And so what I'm telling you today is that it's obedience. I do not want you to miss out on the fact, and, and this is the caveat for the rest of the message, if I don't mention it again, is that your ability to do that is found in the Spirit of God. It is not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord. The power for you to fulfill everything that Jesus has called you to. He's, the Bible says he's given us everything for what? Life and godliness. So if you, you know, for you, you have total victory in your life if you want it. It's, it, it, it the power is there to obtain it. It's your, the, it comes down to your willingness to obey the Word of God. That is the first point. Secondly, we see that the the, the way to victory is marked with sacrificial worship. Uh, The disciples, they went and they got the donkey, the colt, the foal. They they brought it back to Jesus just as he said they should. They were fully obedient. Part one is done. Part two, it says in verse 35, and they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. the disciples are fully obedient to bring this colt to Jesus and before they sit Jesus upon the virgin back of this colt they lay down their colts now this is significant this is a sign culturally of humility and honor and what it is is what they're saying is they're saying we believe you are the king we believe you're the king. Well, why do I say that? Well, you know that when you when you read scripture, there's a law in scripture, interpretation of scripture, that's the, the, the law of first mention. And, and so when you look at a, a particular situation, a word or whatever it is, you you find where it's first mentioned, and whatever it means there, it means the rest of scripture. And so we find this very situation happening in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. The cloaks are laid upon... Uh, the The the, the path of a king. It says this. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. What do you think they're proclaiming as they take off their cloaks and they lay them on the back of the donkey? As they lay them on the ground uh, for the donkey to tread upon. They're saying, Jesus Christ is king. That's what they're telling Everyone around them, including the Pharisees. Now you can imagine the disgust that they have. They don't believe this to be so. And yet, it doesn't matter what we believe. What does the Word of God say? What does the Word say? Here we find them, His disciples, declaiming, proclaiming Jesus is King. Matthew's Gospel tells us further that they cut off branches and they laid them on the path as well. That's why we call it Palm Sunday. What's the significance of the palm? The palm is symbolizes goodness, well-being, and victory. The palm branches were carved upon the walls and the doors of the, of the temple. They had palm branches, you know, designed in the linen of the tabernacle. It was meant to declare victory. We are victorious. Here we find... These guys being sacrificial in their worship to the Lord. They're, par- they're taking off their cloaks. Why are they doing that? Well, I mean, we, we, we said it already. Um, it's because they're declaring him as king. But here's the important part of it is that the cloak that's been taken off is so important to them that it's a sign of sacrifice for them. That cloak was their covering. Oh, it wasn't just a jacket that they wore during the day. It was their blanket at night. And in fact, the Mosaic law says that you cannot withhold a cloak from somebody overnight because it was their covering. It was what sheltered them from the darkness, from the cold, from the elements. They're being sacrificial in their worship. They're also being sacrificial in their praise. And it says here that they freely began to just rejoice They freely begin to lift up their voices, and they say say to the Lord, Blessed, save us, we pray. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They are proclaiming this messianic psalm of 118, particularly verses 25 and 26, where it says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. They are proclaiming in other gospels, it says the word, Hosanna. Hosanna. The word Hosanna means save us, save now, save us. They just proclaimed by taking off their cloaks that Jesus is king, and now they're saying not only are you king, but you are savior. You are savior. Do you realize that unless you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you can't be saved. He has to be your king and your savior. Savior. He has to be both. He is de- uh, declared Lord here by his disciples. He's also being praised as Savior. Again, the, the crucial part of this the disciples don't even know what they're doing, and yet they're, they're fulfilling prophecy. They're fulfilling prophecy. I promise you don't know what you're doing, but who knows what you're fulfilling? Who knows what you're fulfilling? What part of Scripture are you playing? What part of it are you playing out because you're in the Bible somewhere? God inserted you in, his, in the time frame of these last days for a purpose, and He gave you a commission. You're playing out a role in God's plan. What is it? Be faithful. Do it exactly the way that He tells you to do it. Victory can only be found... In the name of Jesus, it's him as king and savior. It's through our sacrificial worship that we find the way to victory. This is displayed for us very, very simply in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 24 as David. You may have remembered the story, David took a census. And it was during that time that he displeased the Lord. I believe that it was pride in David wanting to count the people to say, oh, look how great I am. Look at this great thing that I've done. I, I am the one who slays 10,000. Maybe he's singing his own song, tooting his own horn. What I know is the Lord was displeased. The Lord didn't ask him to do that, but he did it anyway. And you recall, it's, it's, it's one of those only times in Scripture where the Lord says, what do you want your punishment to be, David? You ever done that with your kids? Isn't that fun? You're like... See, do you want a spanking? you want to be grounded for uh, like two weeks or should I just take your electronics away for, for a month? Which one would you like? <laughs> you know, well, God does that. And David says, man, Lord, I don't want to fall in the hands of angry sinful men. I'd rather fall in the hands of my gracious God. And he said, you choose. And so the Lord chose and the Lord plagued plagued Israel, and during this period of time when the plague came about, well, just a matter of a couple days, 70,000 people, 70,000 people died from this plague as a result of what David did, as a result of what David did. Now, if you're David, follow me here. What do you do? How do you make that wrong right? 70,000 people died somebody 's loved one isn't coming home tonight because of what I did. How do you make it right, David says, man, the only way to victory in this situation is through sacrificial worship and so what does he do? The Lord sends him uh, to to a particular man named Arana the Jebusite, and it 's there that he Aaron owns a bunch of property. He owns a threshing floor. And the Lord directs him to go to that place and to, buy, to, to, to gain that ground and to build an altar there. And so David goes. And he goes to Aaron and he says, I need that threshing floor. And Aaron says, hey, I'll, I'll just give it to you, man. And David says this, which is very interesting in 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 24 and 25. No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. I will not worship God in that manner. I must come sacrificially to the Lord. It's got to cost me something. And so David buys the threshing floor. He, he buys the, 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 the burnt offerings to the Lord, and then he sacrifices them on the burnt offering. And listen to what it says as it continues on. So David bought the threshing floor and... The, and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted from Israel. How did David find victory in his failure? Through sacrificial worship. Not in what was given to him, but in what cost him something. If you're going to find victory in your life in different ways, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you something. How many of you step on the scale scale every day and you just go, man, I don't understand. It's not moving. I mean, it's not going anywhere. I'm not gaining weight, but I'm not losing weight. You're not sacrificing. You're not sacrificing. You want to move the needle here, you got to sacrifice. Just as my buddy Peter says, just get some duct tape. You'll lose weight, I promise you. You will lose weight. You've got to sacrifice if you want victory. That's what's being said here. You want victory of the Lord? Yes, Jesus has given it to you. But You need to sacrifice to gain it. He's telling us here that victory is found through sacrifice. The, Lord, the, the, the disciples are sacrificially worshiping the Lord here. They're giving the best of what they have, their cloak. It's the best of what they have. I have money I don't have anything. I don't have gold or money or anything, but here's my most valuable possession, my priceless cloak that takes care of me at night, and here it is. I lay it on the ground before you, Lord, for your colt to trample upon because I worship you. It costs them something to worship him here, and in return, they gain full victory there. Now, not everybody was so enthusiastic on that day. We see that the Pharisees, they were upset they said jesus what are you doing notice it's interesting that they call him teacher i i I don't know i I think that's interesting i don't they're not they're, they're saying we recognize you as something but you're not who they think you are they think you're messiah we think you're a rabbi you're a teacher teacher rebuke your disciples and oh jesus says oh no i can't do that even if I were to do that, the very rocks on the ground would cry out. <laughs> I find this interesting, that we are living stones. You know that? The Bible calls you and I rocks. The Bible. And what are the rocks doing in, the, in here? They're crying out. They're crying out. It's, a, it's an incredible picture of Jesus saying, the living stones, if they don't cry out, the dead ones will. The dead ones will. The very rocks in the ground. The literal rocks would cry out. We read in many scriptures that talk about the longing of the earth to be reconciled. To to see the kingdom come. We read of it. We read of it in Romans chapter 8 where it's talking about the groanings of the earth. They're longing for this, this Messiah to come and to restore this place. Because they feel the burden of the fall as well. So Jesus says, no, I won't do that. If I did, even the rocks would cry out. And by the way, it's prophetic, isn't it? It has to happen this way. Uh, The way to victory is marked with obedience. It's marked with sacrificial worship. And lastly, we see it's marked with awareness of the time. Look at verse 41. And when they drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you. Listen. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus is sitting upon the ridge of the Mount of Olives. And if you've ever been to Israel and you stand there, you overlook the valley, the Kidron Valley, right underneath it. You see uh, Gesem, you see the place where, you know, the Mount of Olives, the, the place where Jesus went to pray, where he was arrested, where he was taken into the temple, all on the eastern side, Mount of Olives there. Jesus must have traveled that road a lot, Every time he went back and forth to Jerusalem, he must have traveled that road a lot. He was in the three-year ministry. He was in the Galilean region. He was coming down into Jerusalem. He traveled this road a lot. And it was on this particular day, game day, that Jesus finds himself on the ridge and he begins to weep. He begins to cry over the city of people. And the reason he's crying is because They're missing out. You see, they have a form of godliness. But they're denying its power. They are not recognizing who Messiah is. They're not recognizing because they're unwilling, he says. They are unwilling to surrender to Him. There is no other name to surrender to except the name Of Jesus. And Jesus Christ in this moment, he's weeping over them. And I believe that tears are streaming down his face as he says, Would that you, even you, had known on this day. This day? What day? The very day Daniel prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 26, where he gave the 70 week prophecy of Daniel. It was that day. Uh, It says this. You're probably familiar with it. Turn there with me. Daniel chapter 9. It's in the Old Testament. You can probably turn there faster than I can. Daniel chapter 9. See, I have an advantage because I have it in my notes. I don't have to find it in my Bible, man. No. (laughs) It's in there, I promise you. Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 26 if you don't have it look to the screen here it says 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression to put to end to sin and to atone for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal both vision and prophet and to anoint a most holy place you see what this is about immediately this is about the Savior of the world. This is about redemption. This is about atonement. This is about God sending His Son into the world. This is the whole prophetic time clock put into two verses right here. This is how it's going to happen. The children of Israel are carried away into into captivity because of their sin. And He says there are 70 weeks to decree all of this is that's going to happen. Verse 25, know therefore... And understand that from the going out of the word to, to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince there shall be seven weeks. And then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be, a, there shall be war." Desolation are decreed, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall one uh, shall come, one who makes desolate, until the decree end is poured out on the desolator. Now, what's going on here? I guess is verses twenty four through twenty seven. There, what is being spoken of is the prophetic time clock of Israel. What is going to happen here? Exactly how is all of this going to be played out? How is God going to make redemption? When is it going to start? How do we know the times, the seasons? How do we know all this stuff? He tells us plainly right here. It's interesting to me that, that you know, here, God laid it all out. They knew this prophecy. The Jews understood what Daniel was saying 70 weeks, it's a time frame. When you look in this particular passage, you'll see in Daniel, when he uses that word uh, weeks, it's meant to be years, a seven-year period. One week would be equivalent to a seven-year period. What he is saying is there's 70 weeks total in the prophetic time clock. 70 times 70. Seven times 70, that is what? 490 years. There's a 490-year prophetic time clock that God is using, and he's declared it. It's not something you have to figure out. He tells us when it's going to start. He tells us, uh, you know, at what point uh, the the Messiah will be cut off. And then he tells us of a a one-week period at the end there in verse 27, which is spoken of uh, one week is what? How many years? Seven years. And how many years is the tribulation again? Yeah, you got it. Seven, right? So there's that seven Year period that is still yet to come in Daniel's prophecy, but two thirds of this prophecy have been fulfilled already. The the, set, the we find first and foremost the seven weeks, the seven seven year periods, forty nine years. It's how long it took from the point in which Artaxerxes told Nehemiah to go back to Jerusalem in Nehemiah chapter two and restore Jerusalem. You go back and you do that. You can look it up later. You can read about it there. That was at the point of time in which this prophetic time clock started. So it was 49 years to the restoration of Jerusalem. There would be 62 uh, weeks from the point in which the se- the seven uh, weeks plus the 62 weeks, that's 69 weeks. That's how we get to that 69 week. Maybe you've heard that. The seven years, uh, the seven weeks is speaking of the 49-year the period of when Jerusalem being restored. The 62-week period, the time in which... Jerusalem will continue under, you know, this troubled times of being, you know, slaughtered and, and being dealt with by various different enemies and all that kind of stuff. But Messiah will show up in that 62-week process. And after, it says, the 62 weeks, there he will be cut off. Well, the 62 plus the 7, the 483 years, if you times that by... the the calendar that they used back then, which is 360 days, and you you account in for, uh, am I losing you guys? Are we on the same track here? Because I'm like, (laughs) here's all that I want to say to you. All I want to say to you is the very day that Jesus was talking about is the seven weeks plus the 62, the 69 weeks of when Jesus rode in Jerusalem on his donkey. It's the same day. It's this day. That's what he's talking about. 483 years had gone by to get to this day when Jesus would ride into Jerusalem on the donkey that was prophesied. There's no way you can make this up, guys. There's no way that you can make it up. You can look at the calculations. You can see it. It's amazing how awesome God is. He's that big that he could speak to Daniel 500 years before any of this took place and say, here's the prophetic timepiece. Put it on the wall and let people know. Here's what will happen. And it happened just as he said. It was that time that Jesus was weeping over. Don't you understand the Bible? Don't you understand what Daniel was talking about? In Daniel chapter 9, this is the time. It's game day. What are you guys doing? You're missing it. The reason why Jesus is weeping is because there's repercussions for missing it. And he understands the repercussions because he goes on to say that there will be a physical desolation of Jerusalem. Yes, it's going to happen in 70 AD. We see it in, you know, you can read it in history books. That's what happened. Jerusalem was desolated. Not one stone stood upon another. They came in and they, they broke the temple down. They... They they took all the gold that was melted upon the walls, and that's why there was no stone laid upon another, because they took every single piece of gold that was laid into those stones, and Jerusalem was just ransacked and completely obliterated. Just as he said, but that's not necessarily why he's weeping here. I think he's weeping because there's a greater destruction to come. This is just a physical destruction of, of this city, of this town of this nation but he's talking about an eternal destruction that doesn't go away and he's weeping over these two million plus people that are in jerusalem because make no mistake about it jesus loves people and he's weeping over these people in this city because he knows that they're destined for destruction and they're just happy to do it because they're caught up in their own religious acts and they're missing the most important part, they need the Messiah. They need a Savior. Listen, the way to victory is staying in tune to the time. To understanding, does it not put urgency in your heart to live more for the Lord when you remind yourself that He's coming back soon? Does that not, in, does that not promote a little bit of encouragement for you to live for the Lord a little bit more than you have? It ought to if it doesn't because here's the thing is Jesus is coming back and he's coming back on a horse and you don't want to see him that way. And so he's crying out even today. He's saying, come to me, man. You, while you still have breath in your lungs, don't, don't, don't forsake me. Don't reject me because make no mistake, I'm the only way. There is no other way. I'm it. Your entire eternity laid in the balance of whether or not you accept or reject Jesus Christ for who he says he is. He is either king of kings and lord of lords and savior of the world or he is a fake and a phony and you ought not to follow him at all. What what are you doing here if you think that in the first place? But if you believe Jesus Christ to be the king and savior of the world, then is he not worth your life? Is He not worth everything that you have? Listen, He died for you. He loves you. He he, he draws you to Himself. He wants relationship with you. And this morning, I think He wants to maybe even wake us up a little bit in our slumber of Christianity. And He wants to remind us that, hey, you've won the lottery, but how come you're only willing to take part of the prize? Don't you want the whole thing? Don't you want it all? if you do it's available for you and it's going to come through obedience and it's going to come through sacrificial worship and it's going to come through you continually keeping in tune to the signs of the times the end is near time is short Paul said we are in the last days how many years ago was that 2,000 years ago somewhat roughly they were in the last days then where do you think we are listen to me The the hour hand has hit the clock. It is there. All we're waiting for is the second hand to move into position, and all of hell is going to break loose on this earth. And I don't say that to scare you. I say that to warn you, because Jesus Christ weeps over those who are lost. And He wants you to be saved. He wants you to come into right relationship with God. And if you're not there today, the timing for you the way to victory for you is in this, that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day, not tomorrow, not next week, not next month. You're not guaranteed any of those things. Today is the day of salvation. If you don't know Jesus, if He's not your Lord and Savior, you need to just confess with your mouth that He's Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. Turn away from your sin, the Bible says, to repent and to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He's weeping over you. He weeps over us, and I pray that God would give you and I that same heart that he has for the lost, that we would weep over those who are lost. If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with the Lord, we're going to be reminded of what he did for us here in a moment. He died for us. He shed his blood so that you and I could have victory, so that we could be released of sin and death so we could have our chains broken, so we no longer have to be slaves, as the song goes, but that we can live victorious lives. If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Christ, it's a prayer, a sincere prayer to Him that says, Lord, I I know I need what that guy's talking about this morning. My life, I feel I'm distant towards you. Maybe you even go to church, man. Maybe you've been going to church for a long time and you've never really turned your life over. If there's not a distinct moment in your life where you've said, hey, Lord, I'm yours, then today ought to be that day, even if you're a churchgoer. Because without that declaration to the Lord this morning, you're not His. You've you got to willingly turn your life over. He willingly turned His life over for you and He's saying, do the same for me. So take a stand here this morning for the Lord and say, Lord, I want you. I'm turning away from my sin. My life is not where it needs to be for sure, and I think every one of us could say that, but my life's not where it needs to be, but I know that you're the path to where it it can go through Jesus Christ, through his blood on the cross, through his death and resurrection. I'm believing in him. I'm believing in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And I want to receive Him as my Lord and Savior. And if you s- just say a simple prayer to God like that, He'll receive you in. I have this picture even now. All of heaven peeking over, the, peeking over the edge of heaven, looking and longing to see people come to Christ because they want to rejoice. And so if that's you this morning, come to Christ. Partake of communion today as a believer In the Lord. It's for believers. We're believing in the body, which is the bread representation here, the broken body of Jesus Christ. We're believing in the cup, which is the blood of Jesus Christ represented, and that He shed His blood for you. This symbolizes the love that Christ has for you. And so as we come to the table this morning, we're reminded to do it in a worthy manner. If you're not a Christian, become one. If you're a Christian and you've not been living for Christ, repent. Come to the table this morning with a joyful heart and say, Lord, thank you for what you've done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and for your word, and we thank you for the weight of victory. And God, we ask that you would just move in our midst this morning, that you would draw all hearts to yourself. God, you know where every single person is in this place today. Your heart's desires for all men to be reconciled to you. Lord, we believe it. And we know that, Lord, we can't call ourselves something that you don't acknowledge. Calling myself a Christian doesn't make me one. It's only the actions of following Christ that make me a genuine believer. And so this morning, as your people, we want to just sit at your feet. We want to just acknowledge the great gift that you've given us in salvation. And we want to um, remember what you've done for us on the cross and through the grave, that you rose again from the dead, that there is victory in what you've done for us. And we pray that you would move us now. We lift all this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.